God, there is no other like you. There is no higher. There is no love greater. God, there is no one more mighty to save than you. God, we praise your name this morning because you are our God. God, we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to turn to a time of scripture reading. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can pull out one underneath your seat. Today's passage is from Matthew 12. It's on page 816. So kids, I invite you to open up a Bible and read along with me. Matthew 12, 1 through 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm the interim pastor here at Trinity. Glad to be with you here this morning. Kids, so happy to have you with us in the service. I love having the kids in the service, and it's been a long time, I think, since the summer, right? Like we haven't done this since the summer. So happy to have you here. So I figured I'd start just with a quick note on kind of what to expect for the next couple months sermon-wise. So this is the last sermon that we're going to have in Matthew for about two months. Next week we start Advent. 
So we're going to do an Advent series, and, and this year we're going to kind of do something a little bit different for Advent. We had a lot of good feedback from the series we did over the summer. There was sort of a biblical theology series. We just sort of took one theme from the Bible and just showed how it's developed over the, the whole Bible's story. So we did the theme of kingdom. Now, if we just left it at the theme of kingdom, that would be sort of like taking the alto section out of a choir and just listening to the alto section and then never actually going back to hear what the whole arrangement sounds like. In order to to really get a sense of the whole song that the Bible is giving us, we need to add in the bass line, the tenor, and the soprano, and all of that, and and to really get a bigger sense of of the whole story. So we're going to do another theme from, from the scriptures, another way that the story is developed, and it's going to be the presence of God. The presence of God's the story of God's desire to dwell among people and how he brings that about through Jesus. So that's going to be our Advent series for December. And then in January, rather than jumping right back into Matthew, what we're going to do instead is we're going to take the month of January, and for each week in January, we're going to just take one of our values, gospel, worship, community, and mission, and, and, and those of us who teach here at the church, we're just going to kind of talk through the ways in which we, we see God leading us as a church in each of those, those values over the next, next year. So that's kind of our plan going forward. Sermon-wise, that's what to, ex- what to expect in February. We'll jump back into Matthew and be in that for the foreseeable future. So if you'd join me in prayer before we jump into the text, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, I, I pray for clarity this morning. We're dealing with a lot of a lot of things that you know, some of us aren't, aren't as familiar with. They're kind of strange Sabbath laws and, and things like that. I ask, Lord, that you would make this passage clear to us. And, Lord, that the, that the result would be um, a, a deeper pursuit of you. That the things that are important to you would become important to us. We love you, Lord. Amen. So some of you kids are probably too young yet to, to know about guidance counselors, but for, for those of you who are older, you might have already had a couple of meetings with them. When I was in school, the guidance counselor at our school is kind of there to help you kind of figure out how you're doing at school, what you might need to change, or how the school might be able to help you along. And it was always really useful to talk to the guidance counselor, because when you talk to them, you learned what was important to the school. You learned what was important to the school, and so that's helpful to know if you're a student, Right? So that's kind of what this passage is going to do for us. This passage is going to show us what's important to God. This passage is going to show us what's important to the Lord. What we're going to see is that because of who he is, Jesus reveals what's important to God. Because of who he is, Jesus reveals what's important to God. And we're going to see three ways, see three things that are important to God, three ways that his priorities work. And first, what we're going to find, Jesus reveals that ends— are more important than means. I'm going to explain that. Ends are more important than means. So let's, let's reread verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? 
I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if, it, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So it's important here to talk a little bit about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath meant for the people of Israel. The Sabbath had a really important purpose. See, for all the nations around Israel, there wasn't this sort of day set aside just to rest and just to reflect and, and remember God. There wasn't that sort of a day. They would work and work and maybe rest sporadically, right? But real resting was kind of a luxury of the very rich. In general, people said, you know, the most important thing in life is for me to succeed and to survive. To succeed and to survive, that's the most important thing. And so I need to, to work as much as I can or else I won't be provided for the way I need to be or want to be. The most important thing in the world is to succeed and to survive. I can't afford to not work. But for God's people, they they thought that there was so much more to life than just succeeding and surviving. They believed that the most important thing in the world was the Lord himself. And so worship was what they wanted to orient their whole lives around. They wanted to center worship. They want worship at the center of their lives. And so the Sabbath became this way for them to literally organize time around worship. Like the way that they were going to tell time through a week was going to be organized around this day, set aside just to remember and love God and to remember and love the people that God put in their lives. So can you see how, how amazing that would be? Like, you know, in those spy movies where people, you know, guys get together and it's like, all right, let's synchronize our watches. Right? They all synchronize their watches together, so they're all telling time all together. See, Israel, they synchronized their time to God's time because they wanted to synchronize their hearts to God's heart. To have this weekly rhythm of Sabbath, this constant, ongoing reminder of who is king, of who they serve, of the one who saved them. Sabbath was that. For them. And it had a purpose. It wasn't the end in and of itself. It was a means to an end. God wanted his people to honor the Sabbath because the Sabbath would shape them into something different. So the Sabbath absolutely set Israel apart from the nations around them. But Jesus here, he's saying that the, that the Pharisees have mistaken the ends for the means. They've taken these habits, right? These, these very important, essential habits. They have made them the end-all, be-all, what it means to be a person of God. But God didn't save them for the Sabbath. He saved them to be a kingdom of priests, right? A holy nation, his treasured possession in the world. And the Sabbath was a really important way for them to embody that. But people don't exist for the Sabbath. The Sabbath existed for people. The Pharisees mistook the ends for the means. But so that leads me to ask this question then. What makes our lives distinctly Christian? What makes our lives distinctly Christian? Because it'd be really easy for us to answer that question by saying, okay, sure, so what makes my life distinctly Christian? Well, a Christian reads their Bible. A Christian goes to Sunday gathering. A Christian goes to community group or they go to, to Sunday school or to youth group. That's what a Christian does. Those things make a Christian's life distinct. 
And that answer is partially true. But like most partially true answers, it's almost as destructive as a lie. Because the, the, all these things, they, they are extremely important, vitally important, but they are means and not ends. God didn't redeem you for Sunday gathering, but Sunday gathering is vitally important for what he redeemed you for. God didn't redeem you for devotional times, but devotional times are vitally important for what he redeemed you for. He didn't create you and redeem you by the blood of Jesus just so that we can attend as much Christian programming as we can pack into a week. That wasn't the goal. The goal was the image of God in our lives. The goal was that we would be walking, breathing embodiments of God's character and rule in this world. The goal was worship. The goal was community. The goal was to like live lives of moral beauty. The goal was the rule of God expanding across this planet through lives lived in cooperation with the Creator for the glory of God and the life of the world. That was the goal. How often do we mistake the means for the ends? How often do we look at these habits that are essential and we think that that's where it all ends when really it's through these habits that we become shaped into the people that God wants us to be? See, back in the day, the sacrifices were essential, but they weren't the point. Back in the day, the Sabbath was essential, but it wasn't the point The temple even was essential, but it wasn't the point. Redemption was the point. Changed hearts was the point. The end of idolatry, the end of isolation. But the Pharisees had exchanged mercy for sacrifice. See, one of the ways that the Pharisees did this is they had this thing called the fence. So the fence was, you sort of had the the actual Sabbath laws, right, from the Bible. You had those actual laws, right, and so... You didn't want to break those laws. You didn't want to break those very, really very few laws about what you couldn't, couldn't do on the Sabbath. There's actually very few. But you didn't want to break those laws, right? And so we're going to add, the Pharisees thought, we're going to add this fence of additional rules around that core of rules. Because then if you're being careful about the fence, if you're not breaking the fence, then you're certainly not going to break the Sabbath rules. And so they created this, this like additional rule system. It was very intense. So for instance... No cooking food on the Sabbath. You couldn't walk any, any real distance from your own home. You couldn't lift he- heavy objects. And you certainly couldn't harvest grain. And so when the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples plucking heads of grain, threshing them out in their hands, and eating the kernels, they think, they're breaking the fence. They must not care about the Sabbath. Because if they really cared about the Sabbath, if they really cared about what God wanted out of them, then they wouldn't break these rules that we put in place to make sure that they wouldn't break the other rules, right? So they must not care about the Sabbath. And so they, they approach Jesus, and they, you know, they hold him responsible for his disciples, which is what you do with a rabbi. And they basically tell him, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to let your disciples break our Sabbath rules? And so Jesus tells them, My identity is what gives me the right to break your rules. And he uses two illustrations. So the first one is about David. So kids, you remember King David? So King David was this amazing king in Israel. And the crazy thing about him is that he was chosen to be king 
while there was still already a king ruling. And so King Saul didn't like that very much. He decided that he was going to kill David, and so he starts chasing David, try to kill him. So David runs, and there's this story. Right when David runs, it's, it's right after he, he begins to run to the wilderness, he stops at this shrine, and there's a priest at the shrine, and he asks the priest for provisions. Please, I need, I need food for me and, and the people with me. And the priest says, I don't have any food for you. All I have is what's called the bread of the presence. So this would have been one of the symbols used in, in worship. It was very important, and it was only to be eaten by priests. So the priest says, I only have this bread, but I'll give it to you. Right? The priest gives David the bread. And it's not just because David was in need, that's part of it, but it's also because David was David. He was the chosen king. And so protecting him was more important than protecting the bread. And then Jesus gives another illustration. He reminds the Pharisees, you know, you're, you're, you say the, the, these Sabbath rules, they take priority over everything to you, but you know, some people actually work on the Sabbath. The priests work on the Sabbath, and the reason why is because worshiping God is so much more important on the Sabbath. And so the priests continue to do their temple work on the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying this. He's saying, if King David had the right to break worship custom, then Messiah does even more. And if, if serving in the temple is important enough to break the Sabbath, then serving the God of that temple is just as important. Jesus is saying that he has the right to break the Pharisees' Sabbath rules because he's the one who decided what the Sabbath was for. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Son of Man prioritizes ends before means. The Pharisees, they're, they're fixated on the importance of the Sabbath, thinking, Jesus, you must not take Sabbath seriously. But really, it's the Pharisees that have missed the point of the Sabbath. Pharisees are the ones who are failing to recognize what the Sabbath is for. So Jesus prioritizes ends before means. Next, we see that, that to the Lord, compassion is more important than convenience. Let's reread verses 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with, with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, won't take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus and his disciples, they make their way to the synagogue for worship. And the Pharisees are there too. And they're, they're looking for an opportunity to basically publicly show Jesus breaking Sabbath rules, right? They want this to be seen by a whole bunch of people to discredit Jesus. And so they find this opportunity they're very opportunistic in a pretty grim way. They take a man with a withered hand, so somebody who really is in need, and they present him before Jesus. So this man would have been unable to, to work at the same caliber as many of the people in this day. That, that withered hand would have made it so that he probably wouldn't have been able to produce goods at the same quality as, as people around him. And so he, he might have even been impoverished. We don't know. But the Pharisees take this man in need and they use him. 
They say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? See, for the Pharisees and for all the, the extra laws that they made, to, the answer to that question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, the answer is almost never. That, that would have been their, their answer. So you could heal, you, you could you know, administer medical attention if, if the need was urgent, if it was like life-threatening. So if the need was very, very urgent, then, then you could administer medical attention. That would be urgent enough to break Sabbath. But for them, there's nothing here that would warrant that, right? There's no reason why Jesus can't just wait till tomorrow, right? Like, he's not dying, you know, Jesus. This isn't an urgent need. So is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in this case, right? Here at Trinity Community Church, one of, one of our values is community. We believe that, that God has set apart his people to be a really special kind of community, the kind of community that, that has a sense of responsibility toward one another, a sense of responsibility to, to the people around us in the world. And one of the reasons why that's a value to us is, is because of the stuff that Jesus does right here. Right? He, he turns to the Pharisees and he points out to the Pharisees, the issue really for you isn't whether or not this man's need is urgent. You don't actually care about that. The issue for you is whether this man's need is urgent for you. He's exposing the Pharisees' hypocrisy. The issue for the Pharisees isn't, isn't, you know, is this man's need urgent? It's whether it's urgent for them. Because if any one of them had a sheep that fell into, the, into a pit, they wouldn't hesitate before getting down there and getting it out. Even if the sheep was safe, even if there were no like, animals around that would get at it, even if the sheep's life wasn't threatened, that situation for most of them would have been urgent enough to break the Sabbath. And so if that sheep's well-being is so important that it can't wait a day, even though its life isn't threatened, then how much more is this man's need urgent? See, for Jesus, compassion is more important than custom. Compassion is more important than convenience. This is like a theme, right? We're all seeing that this is a giant theme in Matthew. We just keep on coming back to this. And the reason why is because there's very, very few things more important to God than people. There are very, very few things more important to God than people. And so Jesus, he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and they hate it. We're told that this group of Pharisees, they go out and they start to plot how to kill Jesus. Like, they arrive at that place as a result of this encounter. Like, all right, we, we need to kill him. Now, th- this isn't the group that's actually going to eventually bring about Jesus' death. That happens out of a group in Jerusalem. But I think what we're seeing here in Matthew is that already, relatively early on, Jesus' words are coming true. His ministry is being opposed. The world, even those who are supposed to be God's people, often don't share God's priorities. And so they prioritize custom or comfort or convenience more than compassion. They hate Jesus because he doesn't. But here at Trinity, we want to follow the way of Jesus. We want to be a group of people who pick up that 3 a.m. phone call. Right? We, we want to be the sorts of people who will drop everything when we know that a friend is isolated and needs us, who will drop everything to be at somebody's side in the hospital. We, we want to seek out those who are, who are lonely or socially awkward or whatever, and we want to welcome those people 
I think that's kind of the community that we all desire ourselves. Like, I know for myself, I want to feel like I don't have to hide anything. I know that I, I want to feel that someone will make me a priority when I am in need. And I want to be that kind of person as well. I, I think we all feel that. And I just want to say, too, just to acknowledge God's grace in this church over the past year, I have seen this happen among you guys again and again and again, caring for one another. And it's beautiful. It is beautiful to watch what you guys have done over this past year alone. Like repairing cars and caring for the dying, comforting the sick. I could go on and on and on of the ways that God has really used our congregation among us. And, And so I bring that up not to be like, all right, we've arrived, but to rather just say like, the Spirit is at work, let's keep going. Follow the way of Jesus because this is the way of life. This is the way to life. And so may God help us increasingly prioritize compassion over convenience. Lastly, we see that to Jesus, redemption is more important than retaliation. So Jesus is aware of the fact that the Pharisees are mad. He's he's aware that they want him out of the picture. And so what does he do? It reads, Jesus... Aware of this, pulled his brass knuckles out of the shoebox in his closet and challenged the Pharisees to a good old-fashioned street fight outside Capernaum. No, right? That's not what it says. Although sometimes we almost wish it would, right? We almost wish that the, that the text would say this because it's frustrating. But he, he doesn't confront the Pharisees. He doesn't confront them any more than he has to. He doesn't confront them any more than he has to. Instead, he withdraws. Let, let's read. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and and ordered them not to make him known. Now this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He won't quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he won't quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So when we first read this, I don't know what your reaction is, but I know when I first read this, I almost think, why is Jesus retreating here? Right? Like, shouldn't this be the part where he like, chases down the Pharisees and publicly confronts them and like shames them in front of a ton of people and... Wouldn't that bring him into prominence faster? I mean, he proved that he's right and the Pharisees aren't. Doesn't he want the kingdom to advance? And the answer is that Jesus absolutely wants the kingdom to advance. He wants the right kingdom to advance. See, he he tells the people he's healing, don't make me known. And the reason why isn't because Jesus is scared Eventually, Jesus is going to strut his way into Jerusalem, and there will be some confrontation, and Jesus will know that it's going to bring about his death. Jesus is not afraid. But instead, Jesus knows something that isn't obvious to us, and it's that the kingdom of the Messiah doesn't come about by self-promotion. The kingdom of Messiah doesn't come about through self-promotion. It's not going to advance by strategic networking. It's not going to advance by competitive marketing or maximizing his social media presence. 
And it certainly won't advance through hostility. Jesus will not retaliate against the Pharisees. It's a, the, the, the quote from Isaiah that he won't cry aloud in the streets. He's not going to make himself known or promote himself. Instead, he will seek the redemption of the outsiders. He will seek the redemption of those who do not know the Lord. The text brings up the Gentiles. These would have been outsiders in the minds of the Jews. Jesus is seeking their redemption. Matthew gives us his longest Old Testament quote in his entire gospel, and it's about this servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, and how he will be known by gentleness, how he'll be known by love, and, and it deploys these really, really beautiful metaphors, right? Like a bruised reed he won't break. So imagine you know, walking by and seeing you know, a bent piece of catnip. Jesus isn't going to idle his time to snapping off those heads of catnip. Instead, the image is that he's, he's sort of nursing back these you know, seemingly insignificant little plants. That smoldering wick, right? Like the, just the flickering bottom of a, of a wick, useless for heat, useless for light, He's not going to put it out. In other words, he's patient with the broken, gentle with the hurting. And notice what it says, he will do this until he brings justice to victory. So like this gentleness, it's not disconnected from his mission. It's the way the mission is accomplished. Like his, this way is, it isn't just some passive conflict avoidance. When Jesus spends his time healing and demonstrating the kingdom, we're not seeing the kingdom retreating. We're actually seeing it advancing. This is the way the kingdom comes, not through power grabs, not through like unavoidably attractive church programming, not through having it all together. The kingdom comes through self-giving love. kingdom doesn't come through retaliation, comes through redemption. I think that's significant for us, too, as, as Christian voices are, are being sort of removed from the, the norm in our society. Sometimes Christian voices are being moved to the margins. Some of it is just that we're, we're no longer the dominant voice. In any case, what should our reaction be to that? To put up our dukes? We'll fight battles, but it won't be the way that the world fights battles. It will be through self-giving love and the announcement that God is reconciling himself to people through his son, Jesus Christ. We will not retaliate. We will seek redemption. So because of who he is, Jesus reveals what's important to God. But as I said earlier, Jesus won't always be avoidant of conflict. A moment's going to come eventually in, Jesus, in Matthew's gospel where Jesus will make his way into Jerusalem and he will confront the sellers in the temple. He will call out woes against the Pharisees, condemning them for, for their behavior. And as a result, the eyes of, of all these different powers and power structures and powerful people will all turn toward Jesus. The Sanhedrin the Pharisees, the temple officials, Israel's leaders, the eyes of Rome will all turn toward Jesus and turn toward him with hate. And there will be this amazing moment where, where these different people, they will become like the vehicle for all the evil in the world. 
God is going to use their aggression toward Jesus as like this vessel for all the evil of the world, all across the ages, the evil in each of our own hearts. They will become the means of pouring that evil out on Jesus. And its power will be broken in his body. Jesus will win by being defeated. He will be exalted through humiliation. He will conquer by being conquered, and his Father will raise him up in victory. And it will be all of our salvation for those of us who believe. And as a a final thought, just as Jesus reveals the heart of the Father, as we follow Jesus in this kind of apprenticeship to the Lord, as we follow him, and Jesus changes us, we become people who reveal more and more of the Father's heart. Now, that's part of what Jesus is training us into, is to live the kinds of lives that people can look at and say, now I know what's important to God. We'll become the kinds of people who don't mistake the ends for the means. We'll become the kinds of people who love compassion more than convenience. We'll become the kind of people who seek redemption rather than retaliation, because we know that that is the way the kingdom comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your victory on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that that in addition to, to promising us a place in the new creation, you also promised to change us to sanctify us. So Lord, I I pray that you would do that among us, that you would mold and shape our hearts to look like yours. And Lord, I thank you for all the ways that I have seen this congregation care for its own. I pray that you would continue, Jesus, to let that happen among us. We need you, Lord, for every step along the way. I pray that that we would throw down idols in our lives in favor of worship of the true God, that we would come out of our isolation in favor of true community, that we would recognize that there's so much more life than succeeding and surviving, that we would be a part of your mission in this world. We love you, Jesus. We worship you as our God and the one who saved us and who loved us while we were yet sinners. Amen.